Hello everyone. Welcome to the Blood Exchange podcast series sponsored by Hemonext. In this first episode, we'll be focusing on thalassemia and transfusions. My name is Lily Cannon and I'm the Operations Manager of the Thalassemia International Federation. Thalassemia is a hereditary genetic blood disorder that disrupts the production of hemoglobin in the red blood cells, which are responsible for carrying oxygen around the body. This shortage of functional red blood cells leads to severe anemia and patients to feel excessive tiredness and fatigue, have yellow or pale skin, bone deformities, delayed growth, amongst other health problems. Diagnosis of thalassemia usually occurs in the first months of life. In its most severe form, beta thalassemia major, the anemia is so severe that unless it is corrected by regular blood transfusion, the patient will die early in life. The condition is then known as transfusion-dependent thalassemia, or TDT. Other cases may be able to survive with occasional or no blood transfusions, known as non-transfusion-dependent thalassemia, or NTDD. Because of these blood transfusions, iron gradually accumulates inside the body and becomes toxic for many organs. Therefore, patients must also receive regularly, usually on a daily basis, drugs that remove iron from the body called chelation agents. In addition, the provision of multidisciplinary care, the treatment involving the collaboration of many different medical and scientific disciplines, is essential in monitoring and treating common complications associated with the disorder and in ensuring, as such, the highest standard of patients' well-being. Thalassemia is particularly common in people of Mediterranean ancestry and across a broad region extending to North Africa, Middle East, India and Southeast Asia. With constant population movements, however, thalassemia is now found in most countries across the globe. Indeed, the World Health Organization estimates that around 7% of the global population carries an abnormal hemoglobin gene, while 300,000 to half a million children are born annually with clinically significant hemoglobin disorders. About 80% of children with these disorders are born in developing countries. Sadly, a percentage of affected individuals receive suboptimal and no treatment, all leading to high rates of morbidity and mortality, particularly in low- and middle-income countries. The Thalassemia International Federation was established in 1986 with a vision to advocate and safeguard equal access to quality health and other care for all thalassemia patients, wherever they may live. Born of the pioneer work of dedicated parents and patients in Cyprus, Greece, Italy, the UK and USA, the Federation seeks to this day to promote the implementation of national, disease-specific policies and programmes that will improve the quality of life of patients. Working across five main pillars of work, including education, advocacy, communications, networking and research, the Federation's membership today includes 226 members from 66 countries. TIFF works in official relations with the World Health Organization since 1996, enjoys active consultative status with the United Nations Economic and Social Council since 2017, and is a partner of the European Commission in the field of health since 2018. Most remarkably, TIFF has received an award for its outstanding contribution to public health by the WHO. Actively and passionately safeguarding the rights of thalassemia patients for access to quality health care in terms of both basic blood inculation therapies, but also innovative treatments, a priority of TIFF remains that all patients should have access to timely, adequate and safe blood.
Today in this podcast, I am joined by a medical expert, Dr. Farouk Shah, and two patient experts, Mr. Louise Osberry-Gleus and Mr. Riyad Elbard, to discuss blood, thalassemia, and transfusions. Dr. Farouk Shah is a consultant hematologist working in the UK. She works for the NHS Blood and Transplant as the Medical Director for Transfusion and is a specialist in thalassemia syndromes based at the Whittington Hospital. Dr. Shah, can you tell us about the role transfusions play in treating complications in thalassemia? Uh, thank you, Lily, for um, for asking me that very important question. And as you've already described, people with thalassemia syndromes suffer from significant anemia. The main benefit of blood transfusion is to reduce the complications from that chronic anemia. Uh, low oxygen levels, because the hemoglobin is low, means that you get compensatory marrow hyperplasia, which basically means that the bone marrow expands to make more blood because signals are always coming that there's not enough blood. As a result of the bone marrow expansion, patients can develop secondary bone changes, they can develop abnormal facial features, which are classically described as thalassemic facies. They can also develop significant enlargement of the liver and the spleen, which can make the problems with anemia much, much worse. And of course, um, because you're always anemic, you will have increased absorption of iron through the gastrointestinal tract. And the best way to reduce that is actually by correcting the anemia. And that is generally done by blood transfusion. Um, as you've said, there are two different types, main primary types of thalassemia. There's the transfusion-dependent thalassemia, where patients actually need blood transfusions on a regular basis to survive and thrive. And then there is the non-transfusion-dependent thalassemia, where patients can stay alive with low hemoglobins. They don't get as severe hepato or splenomegaly as people with thalassemia major. And they don't get as severe bone changes. And because of the difference between the severity of the anemia, people with non-transfusion-dependent thalassemia don't actually need blood to stay alive, but they will often benefit from going on to a blood transfusion program, either on a regular basis or to cover intermittent periods of being unwell. So how do we decide when to transfuse? Because it is a very complicated decision, uh, the decision to transfuse. In a thalassemia major patient, if the hemoglobin is below 7 grams per deciliter on two occasions, more than two weeks apart, that generally acts as a trigger for starting regular transfusions. Or if there are laboratory and clinical criteria that suggest that the patient is doing really well, badly with that significant anemia, then we will start transfusions. So that means significant thalassemic faces or failure to thrive. So if a baby isn't growing well, isn't feeding well, isn't following their developmental milestones, we will then initiate regular transfusions. Or if the patient has developed severe extramedullary hemopoiesis, which means a very severely expanded bone marrow with tumours that have developed along the bones, uh, and that would then act as a trigger. Once we start transfusions, we do need to monitor the benefit of those transfusions very carefully, however. 
So one of the things about blood transfusions in our patients is that the decision to transfuse is really complicated. And and that's because different patients have different thresholds for wanting or accepting transfusion. Different families have different beliefs about the benefits versus no benefit of transfusion. Blood transfusion isn't universally free globally, and blood is not safe globally. And as a consequence of this, uh, if you are a a patient who is doing okay with a hemoglobin of 70 or 7 grams per deciliter, you may think that the risk of being transfused and catching a transfusion transmitted infection is too high. And you may therefore decide to continue with a degree of chronic anemia. So the decision to transfuse can often be really very, very complicated. And we find that the decision is actually the most complicated in the non-transfusion dependent patients because a child with thalassemia major will die from severe anemia. But someone who has got non-transfusion dependent thalassemia, they're on the severe end of the spectrum, they may do okay without transfusions. And that's why it can become very, very difficult indeed. So what is the blood transfusion regimen at your hospital? For example, what is the hemoglobin level that indicates the need for red blood cell transfusion? Um, uh, Excellent question, Lily. So we always look at our patient and the decision to transfuse is very individualized. Clearly in a new child with thalassemia major genetically, Failure to thrive is our primary indication for starting transfusion. So if the baby's not growing well, their weight is falling off, they're not feeding properly, we will start transfusion. Otherwise, we would uh, start transfusion with a hemoglobin of 7 grams per deciliter. Um, In the uh, regularly transfused patients, once you start transfusion, I really believe very strongly that once transfusion is started and you are a thalassemia major, then it's really important that you give patients the best quality of life that is possible. So we optimize our transfusion by keeping the hemoglobin no lower than 95 before transfusion or 9.5 grams. However, our transfusion triggers are variable for different people. So if someone's got cardiac problems, or they've got other medical problems, or they've had extramedullary hemopoiesis, I may set their threshold at 11 to 12 pre-transfusion so that I've really suppressed the bone marrow, and they're not developing more complications. But if someone's doing fine and there's no other health problems, then running them at 9.5 is absolutely fine. So our transfusion schedules are very individualized. One of the questions I often get asked that always does worry me is um, about what should be the post-transfusion trigger for patients. So we never measure the hemoglobin after a blood transfusion. But we will be aiming with the blood that we give that the patient gets a hemoglobin of around about 13 to 14 grams per deciliter because we know that that's a normal hemoglobin and our patients after transfusion should feel like a normal healthy person. Thank you, Dr. Shah. But what are some of the common post-transfusion complications? 
Um, so the common post-transfusion complications are, um, are the ones that most patients with thalassemia will have experienced at some point or another during a transfusion. So there are acute reactions and then there are chronic uh, problems that patients can get. The acute reactions generally tend to be fever or the development of a new antibody. So uh, fevers are generally described as non-hemolytic uh, transfusion reactions. And then you can have hemolytic transfusion reactions, which is where a patient may develop an antibody after a blood transfusion. And that generally tends to happen if the if your antibodies have not been tested for properly and you're not getting blood that is fully matched. So antibody reactions can occur straight away, which is called an acute hemolytic transfusion reaction. And that generally tends to happen if your ABO blood group is wrong or you can get a delayed hemolytic transfusion reaction where you've developed an antibody to one of the smaller blood groups like the RH or the KELD blood groups that I spoke about. And that generally presents 7 to 10 days after transfusion with the patient developing jaundice, going yellow, becoming very anemic, very tired, feeling really unwell. And they will then go to the hospital and they'll find that all the blood that they were transfused 10 days earlier has all gone. It's all broken down and their hemoglobin's gone down again to about seven or eight or thereabouts. And, and the best way to prevent that in the future is to make sure that you match blood for the blood group that you have developed an antibody against. And that's why ensuring that there is appropriate universal testing for blood groups is so important in the thalassemia population because you need blood to stay alive. And if you develop lots of antibodies, then you become very difficult to transfuse and that will obviously have an impact. The chronic complications from iron uh, from blood transfusion are actually iron overload in the thalassemia population. And iron, we don't have a way of getting rid of iron apart from giving patients iron chelation therapy. Every single bag of blood you get will give you 200 milligrams of iron. And within a couple of years of starting regular transfusions, patients will have developed very bad iron overload. The problem with iron overload is that it's silent. You don't feel sick because of iron overload unless it gets really, really bad. And most, most patients will feel generally pretty well. And then when we say, okay, you now need to start iron chelation therapy with either uh, deferocyrox, which is the oral iron chelator, or with deferiprone, which is another oral iron chelator, or with the desferioxamine infusion, which is given as an injection, Patients will always get side effects from medication. Some of those side effects can be really quite terrible, make you feel really unwell. But iron overload at low levels or moderate levels doesn't make you feel unwell. However, when we give iron chelation, what we're trying to do is prevent long-term harm, which is going to really cause problems. And the long-term harm from iron overload that we really want to try and avoid is conditions such as endocrine problems like diabetes, which for patients will mean that they need to have insulin injections every time before they eat, or hypogonadism, which affects a patient's ability to go through puberty and their ability to have children naturally. People who are hypogonadal can have children, but they will need uh, help to be able to have those children. Hypothyroidism, hypoparathyroidism are the other endocrine 
problems that patients can get. And very rarely people can get growth hormone deficiency. But the worst problem from iron overload, which can kill people if we don't act to fix that problem, is actually cardiac iron overload. Because once your liver is fully saturated with iron, then the iron's going to go to the heart muscle. And that can then cause heart failure to develop. And cardiac failure can be fatal um, if you do not start intensive chelation straight away in that situation. So blood transfusion patients need to stay alive to survive, but iron chelation and good iron chelation actually impacts on the length and the health of the life that patients will have. Um, And all I can say is that the bedrock of treatment is blood transfusion and good iron chelation for all patients with thalassemia, whether they are transfusion dependent or whether they are non-transfusion dependent. Thank you, Dr. Shah. Today, we also have the pleasure of being joined by two expert patients with a vast experience in advocacy, Mr. Loisos Berigleos and Mr. Riyad Elbad. Mr. Berigleos, a thalassemia patient from Cyprus who has previously served as president of the Cyprus Thalassemia Association and on the board of directors of TIF, if I may come to you first, do you know how old the blood is that you are being transfused with? Do you ever think or wonder or worry about blood quality? We heard uh, such a comprehensive answer from Dr. Shah that it's little we can say, but the blood usually we take here in Cyprus, it's within two days to three weeks at the longest. Um, Quality of blood and safe and effective blood as Dr. Shah mentioned, it's it's a quarter, cornerstone of, of our treatment. Um, we had worked hard and long to introduce hemovigilance in the blood transfusion process as a quality tool. Uh, that was from the help from Norway government. Uh, unfortunately, we have not managed to implement it yet in Cyprus. Uh, We had made educational seminars in district hospitals and produced an educational book, but the implementation of hemovigilance, uh, it's an important tool to our blood quality. Uh, In order to uh, improve the services to get safe and effective blood transfusion. Thank you, Mr. Berigleos. Mr. Elbard is the president of the Thalassemia Foundation of Canada and has been a leading member of the organization for more than 25 years. He's dedicated to advocating for optimal care for thalassemia and hemoglobinopathy patients across Canada and globally. Riyadh has also been serving on the board of directors of TIFF since 1998 and has been instrumental in building collaborative networks with various partners and stakeholders, including health authorities and hospitals. Riyadh, what is your take on this? Thank you, Lily. Yes, uh, there's, uh, this is a very interesting and stimulating discussion, and uh, thanks to the presentation by Dr. Shah, um, 
I have a few things that I could add. The age of red blood cells is definitely of major importance for thalassemia patients and all chronically transfused patients. Naturally, the younger and fresher the red blood cells, the better for the recipient as these would function for a longer period of time in the body to carry oxygen, which will reduce the transfusion requirements, hence less iron overload and less potential transfusion-associated risks. Here in Canada, most blood units are about two to three weeks old, and at times patients receive blood units that are four weeks or one month old. We at the Thalassemia Foundation of Canada and the patients in general are monitoring this carefully and has be- and it has become a matter that requires attention. So we will be looking into uh, advocating for fresher, younger red blood cells uh, transfused for thalassemia patients. The blood bank at the hospitals are the decision makers on which blood units are given to the patients. Um, And I guess it's a challenge for them, for the blood banks, to manage inventory levels for the hospital and minimize wastage. Uh, the blood requirements are shipped to the hospitals from Canadian Blood Services or Hema Quebec a few days in advance. Um, also, the other challenges are that blood experts are at different opinions on this matter. So to get support from blood banking and blood transfusion experts will be the first step. And more research and data are definitely needed uh, on the, and required on this to present the case to the decision makers. Now, every time... I receive a blood transfusion. The thought on the quality of the blood unit is on my mind. Faith and trust in God play an important role. Fortunately, I have survived a lifelong exposure from receiving blood transfusions with very minimal and minor reactions to receiving blood. Also, I trust the Canadian blood system, and I believe it's amongst the best in the world. However, whenever there are new viruses and disease outbreaks, it makes me think about the risks associated with every transfusion. I am also worried because recent changes in the donor deferral policies in Canada that will take effect this fall. In addition, some of the extent Existing viruses such as West Nile virus or potential unknown uh, bloodborne pathogens are real risks. So that's always a a major concern. Thank you, Riyad. Bringing up new viruses, we have all lived through unprecedented and extraordinary circumstances over the past two years due to the COVID pandemic. During those acute phases, during the lockdowns, Did your hospital or blood bank experience any blood shortages where you had difficulty getting or could not receive your blood, Mr. Bergleos? Absolutely. Uh, The COVID pandemic has affected the number of voluntary blood donors. Um, That reduction in the number of voluntary blood donors uh, has reduced substantially the available quantity of blood and the blood center has tried very hard to sustain the available qualities with extra drives, uh, extra campaigns, and announcements on the radio, press, TV, and social media in order to get sufficient amounts. Um, If you allow me, I would like to comment that in most countries of the world, uh, the scarcity of blood it's actually the most important aspect in the plus transfusion process. Uh, unless there is blood available, no other issue, it's important uh, 
as important to, to discuss. Shortage is an issue that we have faced over and over again in the last 50 plus years of transfusions. Blood collection campaigns and voluntary blood donors are the cornerstones for blood availability. Quality of blood depends firstly on voluntary blood donation that has strong blood donating conscience and then on, on science, on the reagents, equipment, scientific personnel to produce the best available result. Uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, hemovigilance is also an extremely important aspect uh, to maintain good quality of blood. Thank you, Mr. Pericleos. Riyadh, was the situation similar in Canada too, or completely different? Uh, well, as you know, COVID-19 pandemic crisis was an eye-opener on many fronts of healthcare and related services. So as Louise was saying, blood shortages were common in many countries, and it was um, more or less a global concern, and it did have a tremendous impact on all blood recipients. And I believe it was more impactful on uh, you know patients who have life dependency on blood first there was the fear that the virus might be transmittable through blood and blood products then the fear of contracting the virus during the hospital visit while receiving the essential blood transfusion also the possibilities of hospitals and clinic closures uh, you know were of major concerns during that period fortunately the canadian blood supply was not severely affected uh, mainly because both Canadian Blood Services and Hema Quebec maintain a healthy national and provincial blood inventory levels, respectively, so through, which they maintain that throughout most of the year. This was very effective in softening the impact uh, of the drastic drop in donation levels. So there were times that blood inventories reached alarming levels, particularly the first two to four weeks of the initial lockdown, in March and April of the year 2020. And low-level inventories were occurring often during the intervals of the heights of the pandemic waves in 2020 and 2021. Also recently, over the summer season, the blood inventories in Canada are low. Uh, and these cyclical decreases in donations are also a concern uh, at times, and most notably around the holidays in the winter and the travel and vacation seasons in the summer. However, I must add that patients who were receiving blood at close to home smaller hospitals were not given the adequate amount of blood units uh, that their bodies required to maintain a healthy level of hemoglobin. Also, some smaller hospitals denied blood transfusions for patients and delayed the procedure for over two weeks, which forced these patients to find clinics at hospitals in major cities closest to them that could accommodate their blood transfusion requirements on an urgent basis. Many of these patients decided not to go back to the smaller hospitals uh, following that. Now, during the early months of the pandemic crisis, hospitals were on notice that there may be blood supply challenges. So checklists to help hospitals manage their supply was put in place. And I believe shortages were more concerns about blood types rather than uh, regions. Um, so inventory was assessed on supply for daily requirements and ex expected demands not on qual quantity of blood units. So if the blood supply continued to decline, the next move would be to activate a robust framework nationally to address shortages.
Well, thank you all for this amazing and informative conversation. Giving blood truly is the gift of life for thalassemia patients, so don't forget to donate blood.